Welcome to a very special 10th episode of Pro Corner with Austin Serhoff. Today's guest on the podcast is Cali Condors GM and four-time Olympic gold medalist Jason Lezak. This episode is special because my guest today is my very first executive that I've had on the podcast. I've talked to athletes, I've talked to coaches, but Jason is the GM of the recently crowned champion of the ISL, Cali Condors. Uh, when he was a swimmer, Jason was one of the best sprinters in the history of the United States. He's a four-time Olympian and a four-time gold medalist. Personally, I was really excited to talk to him because he's a hero to a lot of us out there that are swimming well into our 20s and now at age 30 for myself and also people who are training on their own. We talk in the episode about how from 2006 through the end of his career in 2012, Jason coached and trained himself. Pretty incredible considering in that span, he made two Olympic teams in 2008 and 2012, went the fastest relay split ever in 2008 in that legendary relay in Beijing, and was also at one point an American record holder in the 100 freestyle and also a world record holder on multiple relays. He, so he did all that, A, training himself, and B, uh, at age 32 in 2008, and at age 36 in 2012. That challenges a lot of popular thinking that, especially in swimming, you know, that you're supposed to hang it up in your mid-20s, or that you need to be with a coach or with a top training group to maximize your potential and reach your goals, which works for a lot of people, don't get me wrong. And the United States swimming scene is the best in the world and the coaches are great and the training groups are incredible, but there's other ways to do it. And Jason proved that there really is no such thing as too, being too old to improve and that you don't have to go the traditional route to get there. By being the GM of the Cali Condors, Jason continues to shift the paradigm for success in swimming and ways to be successful. Um, it's really incredible what himself and Lenny Kraselberg and Caitlin Sandino are doing for the younger swimmers, this generation's current swimmers, by doing the work that they do for the ISL. They were a generation of swimmers that came up in the 2000s when the money for swimming was just coming to the fore it wasn't really fully crystallized how you make a living from the sport. And I think what they've done is they've taken what they want to, they wanted to improve from their era and improve the current era in that exact way. So as an athlete, as a GM, Jason continues to push the paradigm and inspire people. And I'm really excited for everyone to hear what he has to say today. Before we get to the conversation with Jason, I want to announce that I've launched a Pro Corner Patreon page. If you believe in the Pro Corner mission of learning from the excellence in the journeys of professionals in sports and want to help us continue to grow the podcast and help it improve and also have access to exclusive bonus content not available on podcast platforms or the Pro Corner YouTube channel, then head over to patreon.com slash procorner for a small monthly fee you can, again, both support the podcast and also get access to exclusive premium content. Another avenue that I'm expanding into is live webcasts. Last night, I had a live webcast episode with world champion and fellow Texas Swimming alum Madison Cox. 
Um, if you missed it, guess what? Pro Corner Patreon subscribers can view the recording whenever they want. So keep an eye out both for live webcasts in the future that I'll announce on all social platforms. And also, if you want to, again, support the podcast, uh, get access to bonus content, and view any live webcasts that you may have missed in the future, then head over to patreon.com slash procorner to subscribe today. And now, Cali Condor's GM and four-time Olympic gold medalist, Jason Lezak. All right, I'm here with Jason Lezak, four-time Olympian and the GM of the Cali Condors, coming off of his first weekend off in a little while. Uh, Jason, how's it going, man? How's Margaret Island? It's great. Um, we're having a great time. I think, like you said, having that weekend off was good. Uh, the athletes can get the training and then they'll, they'll decompress a little bit after having two competitions and really get focused on we're going to have four more, hopefully making the finals in a very, very short amount of time. So it looks like eight racing days and a total of 18 days. So um, once we get going again, it's just race after race. And I think these guys have done a really, really good job preparing for that. Mm-hmm. So in a way, this weekend was kind of like the... Um like a buy in the NFL season, like a halfway point? Exactly. Every team has a buy a different week. Um, we happen to be in the middle. Uh, there's teams that have a buy the last week, some had the first week and so on. So um, for us, I think it worked out great. Uh, we got a couple matches in and then we could uh, do a little training and get refocused. Mm-hmm. Was there, was there anything strategically? It's, it's tough. It's hard to like frame this question. Cause it's not like football where there's like specific game plans and scheming and stuff like that. But did you guys, as a, um, as a staff, do any sort of pivoting or talk about any sort of different strategizing in the weekend off where you had a little bit of space to look at the whole so far? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, we did this last year as well, but then you add the element of the new jackpot rule where the winner can steal points from other people, and that's that's been huge. So I know there's a lot of talk and strategies as far as do you rest somebody and save them up hoping they get a jackpot, or do you just swim somebody like Caleb in five events every day because he can do that? So, um, you know, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about shifting people in different events that they haven't tried yet. Um, really trying to see what our best formula is going to be when it gets down to the semifinal and final. So I think we still have two more matches to kind of play around with that and really determine what's going to work for us when it matters, because uh, there are people that haven't swam events that they're really good at. Yeah, I guess you guys' position is um, the most likely front runner of the Americans right now. It puts you in a spot where you can, where you have been able to experiment up to this point and try things and um, just see what works and what doesn't work. Um, I want to talk about that part from your role as the GM. So your main role, putting together the team, and we're going to talk about that and pulling that a little bit more and putting together the personnel. What do you feel like your role is over there? I should call it wartime day to day because, um, you have your head coach, Jaunty, and you have a staff, um, who I imagine you also select. And again, we'll keep pulling on that. But what do you see your role over there day to day right now as, especially in the context of strategizing? Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, I recruited all these athletes, so I know a lot of their backgrounds. Um, But the coaches have jumped in. And as soon as they got on board, they've talked to all their home coaches, and they've done a really good job training these athletes while they're here and communicating with them. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to overstep any of their bounds. I, I, I hired these people to 
to do that job and to figure it out. I like to be involved in it, but um, I'm not the type of guy that's going to push too hard and force them to do certain things either. So, um, you know, I, I'm here, I'm, 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 you know, with the athletes, I'm with the coaches, I'm always, you know, talking. So I feel like my, my role here probably is communicating with ISL, communicating with the staff, communicating with the athletes more than anything. And uh, obviously doing that role before I came here, but you know, it's kind of heightened as everybody's together. Right. You're, so you're kind of in the middle of everything and, and coordinating everybody together. You, you put yourself in a space where you're kind of at everyone's disposal if needed and being a resource. Yeah, definitely. And I'm also trying to get to know a lot of people that I haven't talked to before. I mean, half of the athletes were on our team last year and developed some relationships there. And then there's new ones as well. So it's still only been three weeks. And I think what's great about this six week camp is I will get that opportunity to have some one on ones or some little mini group talks that I really didn't have a chance to do last year as much because we only had one mini camp when we went to Naples. But the rest of it was just compete, compete, compete. And there's only Mm -hmm. so much you can do during that time. And uh, I mean, some of the athletes were hired midway through the year, so you didn't even get a chance to see them until, for example, Tate Jackson, who I spoke with a couple of weeks ago, you didn't see him until the University of Maryland meet. Um, yeah. That's awesome that everyone's over there. It's a six-week thing. What, it, what have you seen so far about team chemistry now that you guys have had some time together and you've been able to, like you said, speak with the athletes and speak with the coaches? What sort of progress have you seen? Um, you know, to be honest with you, I think we had really great team chemistry last year. And like I said, a lot of them came back and some of the newer swimmers knew some of the returning swimmers. So Mm. we jumped right in from the beginning and I think we connected and the group was really good together. And, um, you know, we haven't done a whole lot outside of just being together that we needed to do to make things work. And we had, we actually had a fun game last night. Jaunty uh, put together a game of Jeopardy, broke us into teams and the, you know, it looked like it, it was awesome. They, some of the kids that usually aren't with certain kids were, were together. When I say kids, these are adults, but um, <laughs> it, you know, it was, it was great to see, uh, you know, some of them talking to other people and bonding with some new people opposed to the people that they're always comfortable with. So I think that was great. Mm-hmm. And man, it, it feels like, I've done a couple training camps before and I'm, and you've been a part of these as well on international teams where you're basically just sectioned off with your teammates for long stretches at a time. And this is like the most extreme version of this that's ever happened because it's over a month and a half. Um, it sounds like things are going really well chemistry wise with the team. So I want to pivot to your role um, as in selecting personnel for a second. What goes into how you select the team because you took over this role last year. Like you said, you guys have a lot of continuity with the athletes that you have. So maybe we focus on uh, last year's personnel selection. Obviously someone like Caleb Dressel and Lily King, two of the most dominant swimmers in the world, that decision comes from making the team better and scoring as many points as possible. Are there other factors that go into it for you? Um, Are you weighing out chemistry? Are you weighing out, that these swimmers are friends with each other, are important to each other, or is, is a lot of it, hey, we just want to score points and win the meet, and I trust my coaches to bring the swimmers together? I think it's a combination of both or all these things that you talked about. I mean, for me, one of the, the first things I did to strategize was you look at someone like Caleb Dressel and mm-hmm. you figure out, okay, what's Caleb? What can make Caleb happy? Um, he's got a couple people training around him, a couple people he knows. It'd be great to have some 
friends on that team or people that he's trained with as well. And then you go to a group, uh, you know, like in Georgia, Georgia had a ton of post-grad professional swimmers and um, to try to get another crew like that to stick together. And then I kind of built the team around that, I would say from last year. And, and it's once you start getting some good swimmers, then it's like, Hey, my friend's on that team. And, you know, I want to, I want to swim with a friend. And I think that's why I said we had great chemistry last year was mm -hmm. because I was able to put a team together, not only really, really fast swimmers, but people who already knew each other on the most part and people who got along. And um, I, I think that makes a difference when you go to a meet and you got a bunch of people that are, you know, upset or not everybody's going to swim well, as you know, um, we had some great swims already this year, but we've also had some, some people not swim very well. But mm -hmm. when, when you have your team supporting you, those other people can lift those people up instead of let those people bring the team down. And I think that's um, something that we have that's really unique. Yeah. Um, the current Ali Tetzloff was taking me through that this is basically like dual meet season for a lot of people because they're just training right through it and working themselves really hard and practicing in weights. So I imagine a lot of the swims are going to be not a lot, but a fair amount are going to be, Oh, that isn't exactly what I wanted. And I imagine that support's super important. I love the idea of those that it's, it, you're basically setting up tent poles, right? So you go to the George group and you get a group, you get who's friends with Caleb, who's friends with Lily, and you work your way out from there and build the chemistry in an organic way. It seems like an end around to kind of defeat the idea that the teams are decentralized training wise, and you guys just get together for meets. How is the pro landscape shifted in a way that you've noticed? Because you said you can just go to these pro groups now, and a lot of these didn't exist back in the day. So has that shift made it easier for you to pick a team and see, hey, this is kind of how things work now that there's a yeah. Georgia pro group, a Texas pro group, an IU pro group, Wolfpack Elite? Yeah, no, unfortunately, you can't get every single person from each group, right? You know, I, I got a couple people at Wolfpack Elite, and there's a, you know, they're spread out a little bit. Um, I got a group at Tennessee, but um, there's also, a, you know, someone on another team somewhere. And I, at Indiana, I was, you know, Lily's my only swimmer. So they kind of disperse a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, it's different from when I was training. Um, there really wasn't too many groups per se. I, I was really lucky before I trained on my own. We had a unique pro group uh, at uh, Nova Aquatics where Dave Salo coached a lot of people. They knew that once they finished college, if they didn't want to hang around their college team anymore, this was a great place to go train in California. Now you're seeing more of these people stay at their universities. And now sometimes people actually going to these universities from other places. So um, I think it's really unique for our sport. And as you see this evolve and you see the ISL grow bigger and bigger, um, right now we have 320 professional athletes in this league, right? And mm -hmm. you imagine people are going to continue to swim longer and longer. So these post-grad and pro groups are going to get bigger and bigger. Um, you know, it's going to get harder to make the league because the competition is going to get harder. So I think over the course of time, this is going to be pretty unique and it's going to be a great experience for people like look at a, a Matt Grievers right now. He's, you know, swimming at 35 years old in this league. And um, I retired at 36, which was very, very uncommon back then, but you'll see more and more of this and it's, and it's great to watch. Mm -hmm. And someone like Natalie Coughlin with the Trident last year, who was essentially done with her career, it creates an opportunity for her to come back. Um, the way that you just laid it out to me, it's kind of like these pro groups are popping up, you know, it's supply and demand, it's capitalism. This league exists. So now more people want to swim. So now these pro groups are more defined. Do you see a future where the steps towards being a pro, a pro in swimming are a little bit more solid and defined and kids can wrap their heads around it a little bit more um, 
in a, in a tactile way because of the ISL? Like, do you see the ISL uh, creating that shift moving forward? Well, I think it's going to come down to finances, right? I mean, a lot of people continue for one goal and that's the Olympic dream. Mm -hmm. And if they have one or two years left, they get a chance to do something like ISL. But then if they don't make the Olympics, uh, they probably retire if ISL is not paying them enough money to keep going. And um, I think as this league grows, the money is going to obviously grow with it. And we're going to be able to actually have people swim and say, I'm a professional swimmer. I swim for this team. And the Olympic dream might not even be a goal anymore. Um, right. it's, it's about um, dreaming to swim for the Cali Condors. I had this talk with somebody the other day and it was funny. And it's like, when I played basketball, I dreamed to play for the Lakers. I didn't dream to go to the Olympics for basketball, right? So maybe that's going to be a shift one day where um, the ISL grows and this is a professional thing. Everybody's loving it. Everybody's watching it. And a kid says, I want to swim for the Cali Condors. And that's his number one dream um, versus what our typical swim dreams are now. That that is such a beautiful thing that that idea that kids can grab onto that the way that like you said you can grab onto the Lakers. One of your swimmers, Tate Jackson, was actually very prescient as a kid. When we talked, he said, "You know, obviously Olympics, but the main thing I wanted to be was to be a pro swimmer growing up, and now I have that." Um, for example, myself growing up, I grew up on the same team as Michael Phelps. Um, at North Baltimore, but it was fuzzy because it's like this guy, there's such a gap between what this guy is and what I am. And I grew up in a household where my dad was a pro baseball player. And it was like, well, I know I want to be a pro athlete, but something like the ISL doesn't exist yet. So it's hard to glom onto that. And so now what you're saying, and I see this too in the future, if this, if this thing grows and grows, these kids can say, instead of the Lakers, hey, Cali Condors, like, I want to be coached by John T. I want Jason to give me a call and sign me. Um, what do you see as the key towards the league's success moving forward? Because um, I believe, you know, selfishly, this podcast and other outlets where people can grow their brand and be, be more understood is important. But are there other ways that the league can ensure its success and continue to grow and continue to establish itself as a normal thing moving forward? I mean, if you can put it into one word, it's uh, eyeballs. I mm -hmm. mean, how many people are watching this? And I think we had a great debut on CBS where it was a lot of people watching and, and we got you know a target market, but we got to sell this to people that are not necessarily swim fans or don't know swimming. I mean, we know how many people are involved in swimming. We know how many people read swimming and, and love you know, being a part of it, but how many people are going to actually watch this? And once we know that, and once we grow that audience, um, then we have a TV deal that's really substantial. Then we have people that are watching it, and then we have sponsorships and all these different things. And that's what's going to carry this. I mean, um, we can't rely on, you know, private funding forever. That's not going to last. Um, we have to be, you know, self-funded. We have to make a profit for each club, and the ISL has to make a profit. So that's the only way it's going to work. And it really comes down to uh, getting people to watch it. And I think we've created a product. I mean, if you, I'm sure you're watching, it's exciting. You don't have to be a swim fan to watch it and see this team scored X amount of points and this team just took the lead. And how exciting was that race? Um, did you see that guy come back on that person? And um, the announcers are doing a great job. So I think um, it, it's going to work. We just need the right people watching it. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to pull on something that you just said that, um, the product itself is completely unique. I went to the University of Maryland meet last year and it was a watershed moment for me. Um, and 
the reason might not be what you expect. I've talked to multiple athletes so far and they have all said, uh, yeah, I don't get short course meters, but I know I got to get my hand on the wall for my team. So it's something that comes down to something my, my assistant coach at Texas, Chris Kubik used to say is he wanted the swimmers that when you turn the clock off and it's just race across the schoolyard to touch your hand on the pool, on the pole, that's the kind of guy he wants on his team. Do you see those little aspects that the ISL changes about what a swim meet is? And what, what do you see as, as the revolutionizing aspect of the ISL compared to say a college dual meet an NCAA championship? Um, you know, a FINA meet that, what, that makes it a quality product. Well, it's similar to the first two that you talked about, completely different than the FINA meet. I mean, when you're talking team, you're talking points. And it really comes down to times don't matter. And I know it's really hard for the swim fan because I am a swim fan. And you want to know, did somebody swim X time? And did they do their best time? Or did they break this record or whatever? But it really is irrelevant. And, uh, you know, did our team score more points? Did our team win? That's what it comes down to. And mm -hmm. I think the swimmers care about that just equally as much. I mean, yeah, they want to find out their times, but that's not the first thing. You know, they, they come up and they see the point shift and they see what happened. They see a jackpot or, or they see, you know, them and their teammate got first and second. And it's way more exciting than what was your time. So yeah. um, it's, it's taken, you know, this is the second year, but it's going to take time for that shift to really happen for those people that still care so much about the times. Um, the times are out there. It's just, it's just a matter of um, looking at them. But, you know, basically we're not a time oriented league. Um, when somebody makes a shot from 23 feet or 33 feet, it's still worth three points. Right. So it doesn't matter. We see what they scored and um, you know, it's not necessarily the distance. It's not necessarily the, you know, the touch It's necessarily that you won or that basket went in. That's, mm -hmm. that's what matters. Yeah. And I, I should note a couple, the, the one on the condors that we were talking short course meters, Tate, he was talking about how it's very freeing to not worry about times. And it's just get my hand on the wall and get the highest place possible. Well, the um, other thing about short course meters, obviously not doing it in the United States very much, but um, we're the only country who doesn't do meters. Right. So right. Um, everybody else is comfortable with that. Um, last year, watching some of our swimmers, especially on butterfly or breaststroke, the timing coming into those walls, it was just different because you're used to, coming up doing x amount of strokes and there's the wall but now it's like in the half stroke or they're not really understanding it and you even saw that in the finals um, after they've done that a few times so it's definitely an adjustment i see that but um the more they swim it the more they the more they're gonna get used to it and they're gonna have to get used to it because this is the format that it's you know gonna be going forward um you know long course is actually fun too but it's most likely gonna stay meters mm -hmm. uh those adjustments are and that broader topic is actually something I want to talk about. Um, going back to your role in personnel, um, this could just be this could be a relatively short answer. But you you selected the swimmers. What went into the process of selecting your staff as well? So my staff, I'm actually like so fortunate. Um, I had a completely different staff when uh, I started this, and um, for you know various reasons, I lost my my full coaching staff mm -hmm. and. Um, all of them were hired pretty much at the last minute. Um, my coach, Allison, that I have, she was actually talked to a long time ago and she wasn't sure if she was gonna be able to do it because of other opportunities and jobs that she might take. Um, but then it turned out she was free at the last minute to be able to do this. Um, Sean actually, who I hired, 
pretty early on. I'm, I'm sorry, I should say that. He's the only one I hired early on, and he takes care of a lot of the kids, uh, my Georgia crew. So it's natural to bring him in. To ha he already works with so many of these swimmers. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, Jaunty came in late, and I've known Jaunty from way back in my USA swimming days when I used to travel all over the world, and he would be there um, working and doing analysis. And I always thought he had an amazing mind for swimming. And um, I never really saw his coaching side because he was – he was doing the analyst side, but he was mm -hmm. really, really into it. And, uh, you know, I heard great things about his coaching and he's had success in it. So I knew that he could, he could do a great job there. And, uh, Brian Schrader was in a situation where unfortunately, you know, the swim team at his college was getting cut and, uh, you know, just happened to be perfect timing for him and perfect timing for me to bring him on when I needed him. So, um, and I knew him from back in the USA swimming days as well. So, you know, it was a lot of things that I got really lucky on that fell into place, but all these people have amazing traits and they're all different. And um, I think it's great. And they've come together and work together. And, you know, there's messages going around constantly throughout the day with all the coaches talking about this, this, and that, and um, everybody's doing their part and they're communicating with the coaches back home, which is great because, you know, those people can't be with their swimmers for six weeks. And that's not normal in our situation mm -hmm. um, in, in other sports and, you know, probably people throughout other parts of the country who travel and do this kind of thing all the time. But in the U S it's, it's not normal. And our coaches have done an amazing job to make sure they have the best environment for them and sharing feedback with their coaches back home. It's another, it's another opportunity for the athletes to evolve. Um, this idea that they're away from their home coach for six weeks, which like you said, for the average, you know, elite swimmer growing up that you're not used to being away from your coach for six weeks and yep. picking and choosing what you do. Um, I, I was given a glimpse into kind of how it works with Jaunty and the other coaches are basically taking the info from the, the home coaches and then swirling it around and setting up basically tent poles for the swimmers to be a part of. Um, do you see that? Do you see that as a step forward, like detaching from times, um, the actual training aspect as well for the swimmers where it's like, Hey, I just need, I don't need exactly this, but I can get this today. And then I can get this tomorrow. And it's more in their court, I guess, to select the training for themselves. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, we have people that are in the same thing, doing the same thing every day. And then we have people kind of bouncing around. That's like, I'm going to train with this person today, or I'm going to train with this person today. I know what the, 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 what I have in my mind and what I should be doing. And this group over here is doing that. So um, you got people kind of doing different things and it's been really good as far as working out for us and then you're developing that chemistry you know I see people that having a great time in practice and um, it's different from what they're used to um, they might be doing the same type of swimming but it might be you know taught in a different way or said in a different way and then they have somebody else that's pushing them that they might not have had at home as well so some people choose to go do a workout because they want somebody to push them versus um, that might be the workout that they would have done at home and mm -hmm. um it's been pretty amazing. I've been on a lot of national team trips and to see, you know, you've got these situations where, you know, like Michael Phelps versus Ryan Lockie in practice, you're like, whoa, that was amazing. But yeah. we're having these same similar situations in our training camp where kids are pushing each other and uh, not wanting to lose against each other, but then giving <laughs> high fives afterwards. And like, they both pushed each other to do better. And I think that's what it's all about. And um, it's been really good. That sounds like uh, I'm, visualizing this in my head it just sounds like an incredible experiment going on over there um if i could could we take it back to the beginning when this all started so sure. what was what was the beginning of your involvement when what was the phone call or the email 
or the the piece of contact the you know the pony express letter that you got that was the beginning of you being the gm for the cali condors so back in 2017 they did this competition um in rome and it was you know a u.s squad after worlds came in and another uh squad and they just kind of went at each other right which was really neat and then in 2018 they decided they need to develop this league and they need more teams so they already had their energy standard team because that was a, a base that they've they've already established and they had a they wanted another european team so they picked the team in london and lenny Kraselberg had talked to somebody and got involved before myself and they decided they were going to do a couple teams in in the united states and I think Lenny and somebody else mentioned my name when they were at ASCA had an event and ISL was there talking to people. And then, you know, they called me up and said, Hey, would you like to take over this other team? So now we had four teams. Uh, we're planning this meet for 2018, but we hit a little road bump with uh, FINA blocking us and um, telling all the swimmers they were going to be banned and not be able to swim if they yeah. did this event. So went through that, but then 2019 comes along, they decided to, add four more teams and start calling more people to grow this. And, um, you know, then it really took off as far as developing and recruiting. But I started that recruiting process for 2018 before we, before we got shut down mm -hmm. and it was, you know, real minimum. I only had several people that committed and then, um, you know, to, to grow it to a full team the next year was pretty fun. What were those conversations like with FINA and, you can give as much or as little as you'd like, but there was a scary time period where it was like, Hey, actually you guys are, you guys are going to get banned. These athletes are going to get banned if they are involved in this. What, what do you think that came from and how do you think things got turned around just in that specific period of time? I mean, personally, I haven't had any conversations there. Okay, I mean, this, gotcha. is all, gotcha. this is all stuff that's gone through ISL and FINA and lawyers and things like that. But, okay, uh, fair. you know, they really don't have, uh, the right to be able to tell an athlete they, they can only compete in one thing. Um, so basically um, they scared athletes, even in 2019, before our season happened, a lot of people were afraid that they were uh, to not sign contracts right away or to not do this because they had this feeling that they're not gonna be able to compete in the Olympics if, if they competed in this league. And we even got to the point where at the, the first meet that we had last year, times were not ratified by FINA. So people who broke records or uh, world records, American records, whatever country records, they weren't going to count. And then finally they gave in on that and started, uh, you know, ratifying these records. You know, I think about basketball when you bring it, when you bring up that relationship between a pro league and a governing body, because to us, it would be insane if, you know, whatever world basketball organization exists says, Hey, LeBron, if you play for the NBA, you can't go to the Olympics. And it's like, what, what are you talking about? But just because of the power structures in place, it's actually the exact opposite. So I guess another, another nice thing about the ISL is it makes the capitalist side of the athletes, the ones that are, you know, trying to do a league, trying to make some money, trying to be a part of something besides making the Olympics. Um, it makes it more available to them and it, and it makes their branding a little bit stronger, but you still have to kind of shift perspective of, wait, they can take away my Olympic dream. Cause that is still the more important thing than the other. Exactly. And, do you, and I, but do you see this as a good thing for FINA though? Because the more athletes that compete, the more than could go to the Olympics and stay in the sport. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be beneficial to them. And um, you know, magically they came up with $6 million that wasn't there before to try mm. to give the athletes, Hey, look, let's have a meet and, and support you guys. So um, they have money and um, 
they're doing okay and, and they're going to be able to support the athletes with that money too. So it's not going to be a one-way revenue stream where um, these athletes only have to do one thing. Um, it's going to be sources coming from everywhere. And the, the difference I really comes down to, you know, I thought about this a while ago and you have a five-year-old that's registered in USA Swimming and you also have Matt Grievers at 35 professional registered and they're in the same organization. Mm -hmm. um, LeBron James isn't playing in an organization with five-year-olds. So um, there's quite a different shift in the way that these other sports are done. Um, swimming really hasn't broke off from that yet. And you're still part of this organization that you've been a part of your whole life. Um, so that's really where the difference is. And this, this, I'm not even going to try to do a clever pivot here, but taking it back to the five-year-old, I want to shift to you now, um, your time as an athlete. So growing up in Southern California, um, you said you dreamed of being an LA Laker growing up. Was that, was that kind of your original sports dream? And when, when did you get in the pool and how did you balance out all of these other sports and the dreams that you had? And when did swimming start coming to the fore as the thing that you wanted to do? So I had actually there's two dreams. I mean, I, I did have a dream to make the Olympics. I went to the Olympics in 1984 and that's, I was eight years old and I saw the Americans win gold medal after gold medal. And I was mm -hmm. like, wow, I want to do that. But also in the eighties, the Lakers were dominant showtime. You had magic Johnson. I was like, I, I wanted to be like magic Johnson. And, you know, I want to play for the Lakers. I want to be a point guard. And, um, also played all the other sports too. I mean, I had, uh, you might like this one coming from a baseball side. I had to make tough decisions and, there was a, a year, I believe I was 10 or 11, I had to, to decide, do I go to the Junior Olympics for swimming or the, do I go compete in the finals at Angel Stadium in a hit-run throw competition? Oh, that's and so cool. I had to make the call to go to the Junior Olympics. So I knew when I did that, I kind of knew that my baseball dream was not that important and it was going to, you know, swimming was going to be taking precedent over that. But I didn't stop playing basketball until um, halfway through high school picked up water polo. So I, I really love sports in general. I try to be diverse and not just focus on one. I think nowadays we have a little bit too much pressure at a young age to do so much and, and focus too early. But, um, you know, for me, it was great to, to do seasonal sports, but also swim and then have these different dreams and not, not just a soul dream. It's, it's a very different thing in an area um, like Irvine, where you grew up, where, swimming is as much of an equal sport as everything else that you feel like you can do it seasonally and not feel like you're behind, you know, growing up in a place, you know, like Baltimore where swimming is behind everything else. It doesn't have a place to fit in. You basically have to do it all the time or you do it not at all. And you're not really doing it. I imagine being in a special place like Irvine allowed you to feel that patience and feel like, Hey, I've got time. Like I can do this thing. It's okay. Well, the one great thing about swimming was um, it was okay to swim two or three days a week. Um, so during the, during the time when I was playing basketball season, it was, I was still in the water. I just wasn't in the water every single day. Um, like I said, the coach's expectations are a little different now and they might not allow that, or you can't swim in that high level group because you're not committed. So mm -hmm. the difference was I, I could stay in the water just on a, on a limited basis and still enjoy the other things. And I feel like, you know, having some athleticism and having, you know, land sports didn't really take away from the swimming. I, I was in great conditioning and I was learning some different things with my body that was able to come back in the water and, you know, still be successful. Uh, before we dig into a more serious topic, I picked up basketball three, three years ago. What was your position that you played growing up? So I was, I was really small. It was funny. I was uh five, four going into high school and, um, Oh, wow. 
And like I said, I wanted to be like Magic Johnson. So I was a point guard and I knew I wasn't going to, you know, be a seven footer. Um, but, but anyways, I played point guard and then once I quit basketball, I went into college and funny thing was at six, four now in a rec type game, you're the big guy. And, yeah. um, so I, I go play pickup games in college and everyone's like, go post up, go down low. I was like, I don't even know how to play that position. You know, get the ball. <laughs> I'll take the ball up the court. That's what I know how to do. Well, you were like a, a Giannis type where you developed all these guard skills and then you hit some sort of growth spurt. So I imagine you got to su yeah. surprise, you got to surprise some people with your ball handling when you actually got the ball down low. But yeah, no, I didn't listen to those guys. I just grabbed the rebound and took it up the court. <laughs> uh, but back to the more serious topic. <laughs> um, I talk a lot about visualization and expanding what's possible on this podcast. And that's such an incredible thing you had access to as a kid that you got to go to these LA Olympics. What do you credit about that experience um, towards the goals that you were able to set as a kid? Because not a lot of people are able to actually see it, right? Like kids can say, say in Houston, Texas growing up, like it can be someone who's as talented as you were, work as hard as you were, but they never actually saw it for themselves. So what do you think the difference was for you in that way? I think for me, it really was the, the, the sense of patriotism and winning for your country net more than actually the race. You can ask me like, you know, what exact race did you see and who won that race? And I'm not going to be able to really tell you that, but I can tell you when I saw the Americans stand on the, the metal platform and they put the gold medal around their neck and they heard the national anthem. I mean, that was a game changer for me. I was like, I want to be up there. That's, that's where I want to be. So that's what, and did you feel that when you were able to go up in Sydney as well? Was it the same feeling that you had when you so, were a kid? Unfortunately, or, um, I, I, my first gold I won was in Sydney. It was on a prelim relay. So I didn't okay. get a chance. And I was, that was one of those things like I wanted, that was my goal. That was my dream. I wanted to be up there. And ironically, I get my gold medal handed to me by the manager. It's like, there's your gold medal. Good job. Gotcha. So, I, I didn't feel the same as I got the gold medal that I dreamed about, but I didn't have that chance to be on the podium like I dreamed about. So um, I had to wait four more years until we won that gold medal. And I, I, I was so excited and it was everything I dreamed about. But then what happened was I just, whoa, what happened? I don't remember being up there and just went by like that. So wow. four years later, I had to really focus on, let's pay attention. Let's uh, really put it into perspective of where you're at, what's about to happen, who's watching you. So I'm looking up in the stands and I'm, I'm like, wow, President Bush is up there. And um, mm -hmm. how neat is that? And then my family was up and they ran down and they're crying over the balcony, like, you know, trying to get as close as they can. And so really soaked it up and took in that experience. So beyond... 08, that 08 relay being a watershed moment everyone remembers. It was also a moment that you reached like a goal that you held to yourself since you were a kid of being on the podium and remembering it. Yeah, no, I, I don't know what happened in 04, but I think it was just that <laughs> excitement of this just happened and then you're hanging out with your three buddies that you're part of your relay and um, the next thing you know, it's over. And I even had a reef in 2004. They gave us one. So I, I took it off. I threw it up into the stands without a thought of <laughs> this is a reef from the Olympics. This is probably something you want to take home with you. But um, yeah. just in that, mo in that moment, not really, you know, focusing on anything except the excitement. And then it's just looking back, what just happened? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a rock star moment that you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to chuck this reef, of course. <laughs> well, you know, 
as an age group swimmer and you know going to nationals and things like that you know every time you you win something they'll give you like a little little teddy bear or a little this a little that yeah. you, everyone just throws them up into the sands that's what you do right and you give them to the kid that you know would would love it so that's what i always did and you know i was i wasn't thinking this is anything more than a little teddy bear that i can just throw up into the sands sure of course so the first facet of the beginning for you i think I've, I'm feeling pretty good about what we covered about being at the 84 Olympics. Did you have any mentors growing up in that way? Because again, you had access to a pretty amazing swimming community in Irvine. Was there, was there a moment where you were kind of tapped and given a sense of belonging or was that something that you had to forge forward for yourself? Like, were there big time mentors or people you looked up to where it was like, Oh wow. Like, yeah, thank you for that. So there was actually a funny story. A guy on our team named John Mickadin, he won a silver medal in, in 1984. And, but it wasn't something like, yeah, he was on our team. Yeah, I looked up to him. But it wasn't like as big of a deal really as it was nowadays where, um, you know, that person would share their story with the whole team and inspire the whole team like, like these Olympians do now. And, and I think it just was swimming wasn't as big as it, as it is now. Mm -hmm. And um, so for me personally, I, I didn't want to swim the four and free, but I still thought this guy was amazing and looked up to him. And fast forward 22 years, when I started training my, on my own, John was still hanging around in town. He's a chiropractor and he saw me training. He's like, hey, I swim every now and again. Can I hop in? And John started swimming with me once or twice a week. I mean, nowhere near the shape he was in, but it was great to have people just kind of jump in the pool with me and help, uh, you know, keep that mind at ease and, and be fresh and joke and have fun. And, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty funny. And he actually wound up going to college too. So that was part of the reason why he wasn't really around after, after winning that medal as well. But, um, you know, I did have a lot of people growing up in Southern California, you show up at a local meet and there's Olympians and there's gold medalists and there's world record holders. And um, really fortunate to have so many fast swimmers in our area that we could watch and learn from. Mm -hmm. Um, so you go to college in 95 and I think, I think Brett, and if you guys are listening and you want to listen to a more, uh, into a more in-depth story about, um, your time in college at UCSB and what you learned there, please go listen to Inside with Brett Hawk. It's an incredible podcast. I want to dig into 98 when you decided to become a pro. What did you, what was that to you? What did that mean? Because again, like you said, swimming, it's, it, what it, like people didn't really think about it as a big deal at the time, but you're still in that same area in Southern California where swimming really is an accepted part of what's going on. I imagine that helped. Um, what did you see yourself as when you became a pro swimmer? Was that word in your mind or were you just saying I'm training for the Olympics? It, it was really, I'm training for the Olympics. I mean, nobody back then really thought about professional swimming. People would finish in 1996 and they would retire. It wasn't, mm -hmm. um, there just wasn't a whole lot of money out there. I mean, I, I'll tell you, my first contract I signed in 1998, I won the national championship and an agent came up to me and everyone, I was like, what a sports agent? What is this about? I got a contract for $2,500. I mean, how is that supposed to uh, get me to swim for a year? Yeah. Uh, so basically I finished college and I moved back into my parents' house and they took care of me. And mm -hmm. um, that's just what had to be done if I wanted to keep going. And uh, so although it's called professional, it wasn't exactly what people think about when they think about professional sports. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you shared that, by the way. And I want to push more into 2000 to 2004. But I should note that it, I mean, 
that is a big part of professional swimming pre ISL pre all these swim clinics that people have access to that you get help with it. You know, I, I lived with my parents for a stretch when I was a pro, they helped me out when I was moving to train at different places outside of college. So I think it's really important for people to understand that aspect that, you know what? Yeah. Your parents are a, a big part of helping you with that. So after 2000, after Sydney, you're a gold medalist now. What, what were your steps forward from there in terms of what you wanted to accomplish next? When did you decide, yes, I want to keep pushing forward and keep doing this? Yeah, I mean, part of it was like we talked about a few minutes ago. Um, I did get that gold medal, but mm -hmm. I didn't get a chance to be on the podium. And I mm -hmm. knew that I was going to be able to continue to swim faster. Um, I think I was a really late bloomer in swimming. I wasn't always necessarily willing to do certain things when I needed to. So as I started learning that and doing the right things, I started getting faster. So it was a slow progression for me. And I knew that there was a lot more to learn and a lot more room to to really go. Okay. And then were you starting to, were you starting to piece together um, kind of an idea of, of being a pro at this point, or is it still, I'm training for Athens. I want to be on that podium. I want to win a gold medal. Was there, was there a professional athlete side that you were starting to put together at this point, or was it still kind of under the surface? I think it was there for the, um, but it really popped out after I won the Pampax in 2002 mm -hmm. and, and, I had some really good bonus money from doing that. And then I signed an, my next contract that was way more substantial and I could actually, wow, I can make a living at this and uh, I can go buy a condo and live out, live on my own and, you know, mm -hmm. be a professional. Yeah. And I, was that the Nike contract? Yeah. So I actually got the chance to talk to Aaron Pearsall about this, about this moment in time where Nike just comes into the swimming game what was that like for you? And at the time you had an agent, correct? Yeah. What, what were those conversations like with Nike? And what were you weighing out with Nike, with other places you could go? Was a part of it that it's just like, whoa, this is Nike. You know, you grew up being a basketball fan and they were important in your life. Was there something about what they were offering you that, was, that you thought was really cool? Or was it strictly a business decision? I mean, for me, if the financials were the same, I was no, no, no choice. I mean, I would have probably even gone to Nike for less money. Just like you said, it's the brand and um, people love to be associated with brands like that. And it's a worldwide brand um, that, you know, it's, it's something that everybody knows. And not only are you going to be able to wear a swimsuit, but you're also going to get cool clothes too. And uh, yeah. basketball <laughs> shoes. And yeah. Um, yeah, I can't tell you how, how many shoes I had over those years, but um, you know, and I wasn't even a shoe guy, but I still thought it was amazing. So I don't know. I think there's something being associated with, with a brand like that, that everybody knows was neat. And I'm glad that they came into it to really, you know, help support more athletes. Cause for a long time, there wasn't enough money to go around for how many professional athletes were starting to, you know, come out um, as they kept going after their college experiences. Mm -hmm. What, did, what do you feel like they did for the sport of swimming? Even if it was just in that short stretch, because for example, what Aaron said was he got to, he made a good bit of money when he hit all of his incentives in his contract. Um, they forced the other suit companies to compete and make better products. They were experimental because of what they did for the guys at Texas. It all of a sudden inflated this huge pro group there. What was your experience with how Nike improved swimming um, from well, that, from I that mean, 2000s period? I think all the things that you just said, and I think the great thing was they, they took groups and, and learned from their other sports. And uh, whereas, you know, other companies come strictly from, 
the swim suit or, or the swim industry. Whereas, you know, they had people designing things that had nothing to do with swimming, but they knew the technology and they knew things because they made, uh, you know, bobsledding, you know, outfits or things like that. So yeah. they, they could, they could really, um, you know, branch out and then swimming could learn from the experiences of those other sports as well, marketing and, you know, track and field was a huge Nike sport. So, you know, kind of being able to understand what they were doing to help in the swimming as well. So I think it helped in that aspect. Um, a lot more competition, I believe. And as far as, you know, bringing those dollars up for other people as well. Mm -hmm. I imagine the idea of learning from other sports was cool to you being such a big basketball fan growing up that you, you got that concept of yes, swimming can learn from other sports. It's not just swimming the sport, right? Yeah. Um, so 2004 happens, you get your first gold. Um, but you also competed for the first time individually at the Olympics in the 50 freestyle. So what, what was that experience like that? Because you'd done the event, you had done individual events at Worlds, at Pampax, at other FINA meets, but that was your first time on the Olympic stage. What, what changed after that for you? Was that also a step forward? It's like, yes, now I can do the individual events and now I have goals in, in these events moving forward too. Yeah, I mean, so after 2000, from every year then on out, I started doing these the individual events at all the major um, competitions. So, um, and like I said, winning the Pampax was a was a big experience for me, and then meddling at Worlds and things like that. But um, the, the tough thing was moving forward after 04 was the mistake that I made in 2004, and that was my motivation really to keep going along with our relay. So. Uh, a lot of people didn't know at the time, but I was ranked number one in the world and second fastest performer of all time. And I was trying to manage all my swims. And, you know, we have the preliminaries, the semifinals, the finals. And I thought I could take it nice and easy on the preliminaries and just cruise in the top 16. No problem. I wound up getting 21st place. So for me to have to watch the guy win a gold medal in the time I did at trials was mm -hmm. just devastating. And that was wearing on me for a long time. And, and, you know, that was my motivation to come back and, and swim that in 2008. Right. What, and you had the 2005 worlds after that, were you holding that in your mind of like, that's never happened to me again. And how did that change your approach to that meet and the meets moving forward? Yeah. 2005 worlds. I mean, it was kind of a letdown a little bit. I didn't perform as well as I'd hoped to. And a lot, a lot of that, I think had to, I got fourth place in the hundred free, but a lot mm -hmm. of that had to be with, the mental side of how hard it was for me to adjust to what just happened. And instead of me just pushing it out of my head immediately and moving forward, it was wearing on me a little bit and it was uh, bringing me down. And so I would say it took a solid year to really get that off of my head in a negative way and to really use it as a positive stepping stone to, I'm going to do something that I didn't do opposed to this just happened to me that that year being from 05 to 06 yeah so is it that's actually the time period that i really want to focus on um because at this point you'd been with your coach dave salo at nova aquatics for a long time was that a part of wanting to make a change and swimming on your own because i know that he left for usc but it felt like you know you you seem like someone that your whole life you kind of knew what you needed from swimming and kind of had an idea, like you said, like it was normal growing up, swim two to three times a week. And you just knew that you could do that and still be successful in the sport. You kind of had a long view of like, yeah, I can do this. It's not necessarily what everyone else is doing. What were the mechanics that went into that decision to swim solo besides the things that were outside of your control? 
So just to be clear, I thought all along I, I knew what I needed, but gotcha. um, I didn't, gotcha. no, no, I didn't really know until an older age, but you know, when you're young and you're stubborn, you think, Hey, this is what I need. This is what I need. But I learned so much throughout those years that I finally got to that point where I was old enough that I, I really actually knew what I needed. And, um, the, the, the toughest part really wasn't to know what I needed to do in training. It was more so I'm going to have to train on my own. Um, mm-hmm. I could have, I could have moved to LA. I could have followed Dave. I, I love Dave. Um, you know, I learned so much from him, but I was going to take all these things I learned from him and apply them. And I thought I was too old to try to get a new coach. Um, sure. A new coach filled Dave's spot and, you know, was talking to me about possibly swimming with the team. And I just thought, I just, I can't try something at 30 years old and have this guy try to, you know, adapt to my type of training that I need, uh, that I'd learned all these years. I was just going to go for it. And um, that, like I said, the hardest part wasn't really doing it, uh, writing it down and figuring it out. The hardest part was being there in practice and doing it. So you almost saw it. It was, it seems like it was two parts. Number one is an urgency knowing your age and your time in the sport and the two year window you had before the next Olympics and Oh seven worlds coming up in a year where it's like, I can't just like shift everything around and make all these moves. But it also was an opportunity to bet on yourself and put together everything you learned over the years. Yeah. And what I did, uh, the first year wasn't perfect. And, um, I wound up going to the world championships and, you know, it was, uh, another, I've had so many, so many world experiences, uh, that, you know, I'm missing out or an Olympic experience at the 2004 when I missed the 53 medal by this much, I mean, Mm -hmm. hundreds of hundreds of a second, you know, and in 2006 or no, 2007, I should say at world championships, it was no different. I actually qualified first going into the finals and, Mm -hmm. I repeated my time in the finals to the hundredth of a second. I got fifth place, nine one hundredths from first place. Oh so my we had goodness. five five guys separated by nine one hundredths. I don't know if you can find a race in history that you had five guys separated by nine one hundredths of a second. Um, so I went from first to fifth. And you know, then that was more motivation of okay, what can I do? What can I learn? How can I get faster? And um, you know, that's what I continued to do over the next year. How did you train? How did you change? I want to dig into two parts between 07 and 08. Number one, the physical side. What did you sit down and say to yourself that I want to change this in my training? And, and, and again, you're on your own. So you can literally do whatever you want and make whatever changes you wanted to make. All the power was with you. Yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with how many times per week I was going to do certain things or um, how much during that session was enough and how much was too much. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people want to just work, 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 which sometimes is, is overdoing it. And uh, there was quite a few times, I think, from 06 to 07, where I worked probably too hard for myself because I wanted it so bad that it affected how I would train the next day or how I would swim at that competition that, you know, during, during the lead up. So it was definitely a learning experience from 06 to 07. And then in 2007 comes along and I, and I thought, why, why am I following my program to the exact T where I wrote three times this and this, 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 and this, why don't I adjust that based on how I'm feeling in that water? I'll still Mm -hmm. do the same thing, but if there's a day where I I have to stop at two, that's okay because I know that I'm going to get what I needed and then I'm going to recover from it and get what I need tomorrow. And that's what I started learning between 2007 and 2008. 
That's such a man. And again, like it's what I said, you had the template from the beginning that you just knew what you needed. I have to guess that it came from where you grew up where it's like, again, it's okay to not just, I have to work harder. Cause you, you can imagine like the average person when they, when they experience say a setback that you had in 07, it's, I got to work harder. I have to do more, 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 more. You actually had the presence of mind to know your body to, you had, you know, 15 years of experience at this point to say, Hey, it's actually, I need whatever it is I need, whether that's less, whether that's more, was this something that you found on your own? Were you talking to others in your life? Cause again, you were coaching yourself, but I imagine you still had people in your life around you that you could speak with and that could help you find those sorts of decisions for yourself. Well, I think personally, I was just really in tune with my body throughout the years. Okay. Um, you know, there was times where I did something and, and I came back and I felt horrible and I realized oh, I did too much that other day. Um, and I, I communicated with the coaches on that and it didn't always come out the way I had hoped for. And it's like, well, too bad. We're going hard again today and, and just do it, do what you're told. But um, I think nowadays, um, I think it's getting better, but there was a point where people just did exactly what their coaches told them to do. They didn't think about, you know, what they did the day before and why they feel the way they feel. Um, they just went with it. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was not that kind of guy. I was always thinking about what I did and thinking about how I feel and thinking about what I can do to be better. And um, now, like I said, over the last like 15 years, or I would say people are more in tune with that and they're more communicative with their coaches opposed to just my coach says this, I do it. It's more, more talk about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think athletes have a, a better understanding of the sport and a better understanding of their bodies now because of that. Okay. Yeah. And I agree with you that it's like swimming is so unique in the way where it's just like, what coach? Okay. Yeah. I got it. And there's like, you know, and that is definitely changing. I mean, like you said, at the ISL right now, everybody is not entirely dependent on this is what I'm doing today. And my coach said it, it's, it's a little bit more of a, um, it's, it's a broad spectrum, right? Another part that I think is super important that I want to focus on between 07 and 08, you know, obviously you wanted to be on the podium and you wanted to remember it. Um, what, what sort of mental processes were you putting yourself through in terms of, I don't know how much you engage with visualization and mental imagery, and then also goal setting that you, that helped push you in the pool every day. And also, um, gave you something to focus on and look forward to going into 08. What sort of things were you doing in that realm? I mean, on the mental side, I think I, I was never the guy that was able to visualize to the fullest. Um, I couldn't take advantage of it like, like others. I mean, I, I didn't have the attention to be able to sit there and see every detail and go second by second through my race. It was more okay. the, the, the broader range of, I, you know, I, I'm visualizing jumping in and I'm visualizing doing something and finishing that kind of thing, but not like the details of it. It was just the thought of it. Um, so I didn't really do a lot of that, but I did actually think a lot about that relay actually before I swam it from the time I made the team until the time we had that during our training camp, there's a lot of downtime. And I actually would lay down and rest a lot during the day. And that relay would just come into my head and I'd think about it a lot. Um, but as far as goal setting goes, I mean, I, I have my plan of, you know, what am I trying to accomplish today? What am I trying to do this week? What am I trying to do this month, the next meet, the whole year, the four-year plan? So I, I didn't just necessarily limit it to 
you know, a week or a month or a year, I had, I had everything going on there. So, and then, like I said, it was a learning experience. You know, you set a goal, you don't achieve your goal. Well, why didn't you achieve your goal? What mm -hmm. can I do different to achieve that goal? And a lot of people wait a full year to actually look back on that. And you have your big meet and, and you did what you wanted or you did it. And you say, all right, now let's analyze this. Whereas I was analyzing it more often. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I keep coming back to this, but also again, training on your own without a coach, you can make those micro decisions in the moment and pivot wherever you need. If, if you feel like you look at your goal and it's like, actually, I'm not on track. Actually, I am on track. I'm way ahead of where I, I'm supposed to be. Yeah, so, no, definitely. That's an advantage for sure. So going into 08, um, and that was also the year that you set the American record in the 100 as well, on top of um, making the relay, having the big moment. What did you feel like was different for you? Because it, it really was your, it really was a big step forward, even from Athens. Um, what did you think was different when you showed up to the Olympic trials all the way through the end of Beijing? And what did you notice about yourself that you, you knew you were in a better position than you ever were before? I think really um, the confidence training on my own gave me a lot of confidence. I'm not saying I wasn't confident before. Obviously, I had to be confident to, to do what I did. But um, I think knowing the fact that I felt empowered, that I knew so much and I learned so much and I changed so much, um, I just felt really good about myself and I felt like I was in a good place. And then to go, like you said, at the Olympic trials, um, I had the American record. Your buddy Garrett broke it. <laughs> and uh, I had to, I, I had to step up in the next heat and take that record down from him. But uh, Gary and I are great friends. Um, but yeah, I know it was, uh, I, if, if it's one word, probably confidence. Okay. And also, I, and again, I, t I talk about this more with coaches than with athletes, that a big thing that's really powerful to the athletes is equity over their training. And you are in the unique position of, if you call it, if it's a company, you are 100% the stakeholder in yourself, right? You had total equity over your training, total accountability. How did that, so then the Olympic trials happen, you qualify individually, you're on this relay. Um, what was that time period like between the trials and the Olympics? Like you said, you were thinking about that race a lot. Uh, what else was going on that you remember that was just kind of different from things in the past for you? I think for me, the 2004 training camp was a huge learning experience. Um, I didn't go into the 04 Olympics feeling quite as good as I did at the trials in 2004. And a lot of that had to do with probably as I was training too hard, I would say, like we talked about, um, you just have to learn what's enough and what's not enough. And so I really learned a lot from 2004. And I knew that we have a, a, a four week period where you need to stay sharp. But if you go too hard, you might not come back from it. So mm -hmm. I, I tried to really keep myself at a really good space for that month where there was times in practice where I did some things that just I shook my head. and was like, wow, I can't believe I just did this today in practice. Like, that's amazing. Um, but, you know, the focus is let's that's, that's keep it like that. Let's keep it fresh. Let's that's, that's stay strong. Let's stay fast. And to really manage that versus overwork it. Mm -hmm. That month... Another piece of it is that you were doing this on your own. So for those who don't know that are listening or watching those training camps, you still are, those athletes are still in groups. It's kind of like the ISL. They're in groups. Um, the coaches are there helping them out. Were you by yourself at that training camp and just picking out times to swim? 
or were you sometimes glomming onto what was going on and doing what other people were doing too? So yeah, we all train at the same time. So um, there was times where a majority of the time I was training on my own and I, okay. would, you know, I would do what I needed to do. But then I also, I'm a team guy and there's no way that I'm just saying ignore that. So there was days where I knew I was doing something or I had a certain plan that I could jump into this set and do something with these guys during this time to be able to bond with them and to be able to be a team player. And I did that. And, um, you know, I did that multiple times. So it wasn't like I was only doing my thing and I stayed away from everybody and I mm -hmm. wanted to be involved as much as possible, but I also wanted to swim fast. And, and I only, and I knew what I needed to do to swim fast. I love that side of it that you also felt like it would help the team if you were doing stuff with them too. So to focus on that part, how do you feel like your role changed within the U.S. national team from being the young guy in 2000 to all the way up to 08 where you're an American record holder and kind of the guy when it comes to the sprint freestyle events and locking down those relays? What, what was your role relative to the other swimmers on the team and how did it change by the time you got to 08? Yeah, so um, I believe it was 2006, the first time these guys voted me as team captain. And although I looked up to Magic Johnson as a basketball player and he was the <laughs> captain and he was the guy, that really wasn't my style. You know, I was just, I wasn't the loud guy. I wasn't the, the raw, raw guy. I wasn't the leadership type guy. But with them giving me that role, I had to understand it and learn it and take responsibility for it. So I felt like uh, they were looking up to me for whether it was age to start, that's what it was, but I had to kind of develop into that role. So um, my responsibility as team captain, it wouldn't be great if I just went over in a corner and, and didn't talk to anybody, right? So I had, to, I had to be a part of that. I had to do everything I could to really bring the team together. And I think while my very first time I was captain, I, I tell the story, it's, it was kind of uncomfortable for me, but um, you know, if you watch these other sports, how does the captain or how does the, the, the motivator guy get these guys going? He, you see him yelling at them and slapping them on the helmet or on the back or whatever sport it is. Yeah. And I got our, our, got our guys together before the relay at Pampax in 2006 and just literally started yelling at these guys <laughs> and slapping them. And I'm looking <laughs> at these guys where they, they think I'm crazy, but I can tell in their eyes, this is, this is going to be special. And we wound up breaking the world record and this was the race that we lost for six years at all these major international meets. And finally, bam, we're back on top. So um, I knew that I needed to embrace that role and really, you know, do something about it. And that it sounded like that's a that was a big moment for personal growth for you as well. Just seeing you tried something, you put yourself out there and then it was something that worked. Um, did you did you keep doing that? Were there other ways that you were trying to improve yourself as a leader uh, beyond things like slapping the guys and pumping them up for that relay? Uh, what yeah, other I things mean, did you grow into your role as a captain? I mean, for me, like that wasn't my style. That was a one-time thing that I did at work. Um, <laughs> but, but I knew for me, it had to come from more of a, like a personal style or a, uh, you know, something that you could say whether it's just a sentence or, you know, a, a, you know, a couple words, whatever it is to kind of help and motivate or to share experiences. Um, you know, it might necessarily before I might've just sat there throughout a whole camp and, and not helped out one of the younger swimmers that was on their first camp, not because I didn't want to, that just wasn't who I was. But now that you're appointing me as this leader, Hey, it's my responsibility to go talk to that kid over there. That this is the first time being at world championships. They could definitely use some help here. Um, mm -hmm. and so that was, that was a, the easy way for me to do it. And then in 2008, instead of the, the rah, rah, that slapped these guys in the head, I just, <laughs> I gave them the, uh, you know, the really simple, Hey guys, 
Um, this is not a 400 or a four by 100. This is a 400. Let's go out there. Let's swim it as a team. As simple as that was, I can look at these guys and I can see that same look in their eyes. They're, they're ready to go. So that was more my approach and more my style than the, the raw, raw team captain guy. Maybe if, if you'll allow the metaphor, maybe more of a Kareem than a magic where you're more leading by example and a more, a more stoic, solid leader than the raw, raw, hey, boy, hey boy, the guys like, let's, let's go do this thing. Definitely. So 08 happens and it's an amazing moment. Um, how did you stay focused between, and I think you talked on Brett's podcast that you were pretty wiped emotionally uh, between the 400 free relay and that hunter freestyle when you tied Caesar for the bronze. What were you doing that week? Um, maybe in ways that you hadn't described before to try and get yourself back on track, try to reset yourself after this huge high that you experienced. Um, what were the things that you were trying to do to get yourself back to neutral? Uh, even though you were wiped physically and emotionally because of the weird schedule, because of the huge emotions. I mean, for me, it was as easy as looking back four years earlier and just okay. say, hey, I can't make this mistake. Um, no matter what I felt like, no matter, you know, my body hasn't recovered. Um, I haven't got this. I don't have this. I don't have this. Just get rid of those thoughts. Go out there. Give it 100% effort. And I think throughout the course of those three races, from the prelims to the semis to the finals, it got easier for me to be more focused and in tuned on where I'm at right now versus where I would want to be. Um, mm -hmm. If I had to swim this, you know, my thought kept saying, well, if I was fresh right now, I could do this or yeah. I, could, I could swim this, but I wasn't fresh. I didn't feel good. Um, so I had to just eliminate that and say, this is where I am. I'm going to do the best I can. And let's, let's focus on, forget about how you feel, but you know, let, let's pretend I feel good. Let's, uh, let's convince myself I'm in my home pool and there's, you know, all by myself. And this is the fastest I'm ever going to swim. Um, so there was a lot of the, the mental game going on for me because honestly, it was probably one of the worst feelings I had stepping up on the finals of 100 free at the Olympics, one of the biggest stages of your life. And you feel like a, just a complete disaster of your body. How was the, and then the, the meet ends with the medley relay, which after everything at that meet, that was like either so close, like your relay finish, uh, literally tying someone in the 100 freestyle and hearkening back to um, that Worlds where you were nine hundreds from a gold. It's like so many of these close things. What was that 400 medley relay like where it was basically like this exclamation point? Because, you know, I mean, America has dominated that relay for a very long time. Was that one more of a, like I said, an exclamation point? Was the pressure off at that point or were you still approaching it like a gamer? Well, the pressure was on because Michael Phelps going for eight gold medals. So really, sure, of course, the talk in the media was not about, you know, hey, we're going to go out and win a gold. It was we could blow this for Michael Phelps. Um, oh, so it had okay. nothing. It, there wasn't a positive spin where we're, we're about to go out and help Michael win eight gold medals. It yeah. was the other side of it. So being in, you know, eight years now professional doing all these major things, I had learned really just not to pay attention to that stuff. I was focused on going out there together as a team and winning a gold medal. And I just blocked out all that negative press. And, and really, um, you know, once Michael took it, took the lead on butterfly, I knew that no matter who, who I'm swimming against the new world record holder from Australia was about to jump in right next to me. I didn't care. 
I was focused on me. I was focused on doing what I needed to do for the team. And I didn't pay attention to what he was up to. I just, I did my race and mm-hmm. swam and swam well, and we won the gold medal. The media kind of could put you guys in the, uh, the offensive lineman dilemma where any news is probably bad news. <laughs> exactly. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I mean, he, he knows, I mean, he needed three relays to win those eight gold medals and all three relays stepped up. I mean, we very could have easily lost two of those three relays and uh, you know, it was, it was magic for him. It was magic for team USA. It just came together. Yeah. And fitting that you were the one that was able to stick the landing, uh, get your hand on the wall and get uh, your second gold and your third third medal of the meet. So now out of Beijing, you've gotten yourself onto the podium. You've remembered your gold medal experience. You've got your individual medal. What what did you do right after the meet? Did you take some time off? Were you resetting your goals? What was that time period like for you? So I did take some time off. Like I didn't touch the water for the longest time that I've you know, it's in my history of swimming, really, um, it was a, a couple months at least until I got back and touched the water. And then I started swimming on a irregular basis. I mean, just um, to be in there and I was doing dry land, I was staying fit. I knew I wanted to keep going, but I just really wasn't motivated yet to, to train hard to keep going. And um, finally, in the you know early part, I think of 2009, I decided that um, I, I was going to start training more regularly and uh then i decided instead of going to the world championships that summer um i would go to israel for the maccabi games because this was something um being a jewish athlete as a kid i always thought how neat would that be to go represent team usa in israel as a, as a jewish swimmer and i didn't have a chance to do it in 2001 or 2005 because it came down to it's the exact same time as world championships and financially I needed to go to world championships to make a living. That was the only way. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had small sponsor, I had funding from USA and I wasn't going to get funding from USA. If I didn't, if I didn't go to worlds, I wasn't going to make any metal money if I didn't go to worlds. So basically I wasn't going to have enough money to keep swimming. And that's, that's why I had to make that decision. And finally got to the point where I had made some money in swimming and I, I did well in 2008 and I could afford to pass up the world championships. And I thought it would be such an experience. So that's what I decided to do. And, um, you know, I never, I didn't, I didn't have that same focus I had in 2008, but the new body suits came out. And although I was probably 10 or 15 pounds heavier, not in the exact (laughs) same shape that helped, uh, compress that a little bit, (laughs) still swim pretty well, considering, uh, the amount of training I did that year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really want to dig into Maccabi because, um, as we discussed before the podcast, my wife is a Jewish person and one of my best friends actually did Maccabi when we were in college together, but just as a preface for it briefly, I have to imagine that the success in 08, not just the money and being able to support yourself and not have to go to worlds. It sounds like you were in that space of like, you've kind of went to the moon. Like you had finally gotten to a space where you could, decompress and be like, okay, what is, I can, t- I don't have to get to the next thing. Like if 08 had gone differently, you might've gone to worlds in 09, not just because of money, but also because of personal goals and things you wanted to achieve. Right. Well, there's a, if, if we went differently in a, in a worse way, I might've just retired to be honest with you. I mean, I was okay. getting at that point in my career where it was getting pretty t- tough to train and um, on the mental side of it was hard. That's why that 2009 year, was, you know, kind of a decompression and not so focused on the training side of it to kind of, um, 
you know, helped me through that year. Okay. Gotcha. So let's go to Maccabi because it's, it's not on the level in terms of intensity and excitement, like a world's or an Olympics, but I imagine it was an extremely important experience with you in other ways. So can you take me through what that meet meant to you and the things that were going through your head at the time period? Yeah. I mean, so like if people don't really understand, it's like a Jewish Olympics, right? And for me growing up as a kid, it was, it was, it sounds a little strange, but obviously I knew I was Jewish. Obviously I knew I was an athlete, but mm-hmm. I, I never really put the two to, together. Like I'm a Jewish athlete and to be able to see something like this, this is happening. And there's only a small, you know, a select few of people that can be involved in this because this is what you have to be to, to do it. Um, I thought it'd be neat to represent my country. And I thought going to Israel too, you know, I learned about it as a kid. I went to, to Hebrew school. So I had that knowledge and to be able to actually go to these places and um, see these things and, and meet, you know, people in Israel that have done something. And, um, you know, I met the men, these mayors and these presidents and, and different things like that. So I had, I knew that it was going to be an experience once in a lifetime that I could never turn down. And so I went for it and it was, like you said, it wasn't really necessarily for the, for the performance, although I performed fairly well basic, based on how I trained, uh, winning four gold medals there. Um, it was really the overall experience. And then to bond once again, now with um, a Team USA. So it was another Team USA trip and all new people that um, most of them I had never met before. And to go share an experience and be a part of relays with them, tour Israel with them. I mean, I was with these guys for a long time and it was uh, a unique experience. Was that being on that team and being at Maccabi, did that allow you to understand some, to get some perspective on your own impact on the Jewish American swimming community? Because people don't talk about this very much. And again, it may seem obvious, but it has to just be said, half of that relay in 08, yourself and Garrett Weber Gale, two American record holders, two Jewish American swimmers. Did that, did you feel, did you feel that when you were part of that team USA and you had all these swimmers that I imagine looked up to you in one way or another? Exactly. That's like pretty good. Like when I got there, um, as a kid, I didn't have a lot of role models. I mean, Mark Spitz was a Jewish athlete who was retired before I started swimming. So there wasn't anyone really to look up to in my generation. It was looking past generations. Mm-hmm. And then to go to the Olympics with Lenny Kraselberg, who's also a Jewish athlete, you know, we say, hey, there's, a, there's two of us here. Like, this is a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so to get there and then to have success in sports and then to have all these young, younger swimmers that were coming up making uh, games like this, they had already looked up to me because I'd been doing, uh, been around for such a long time. So once again, I have to take on that role as I'm the leader, I'm the guy that they're looking up to and how can I help these guys and to try to same thing, share my experience and share my stories with them and, you know, hopefully motivate. Some of them were finishing college and they're retiring. Others were a little younger. So that could give them that, you know, a little push to help in swimming. But um, it was a unique experience for me to be able to take on that leadership role again. Uh, that's an amazing thing because it's it's a strange thing defining being Jewish, whether someone is spiritual about it or like yourself or my wife, where you guys are more, you would say you're more culturally, where it's something you have access to as a community, but it's not necessarily from a, a strictly religious perspective. So did that allow you to also maybe understand your identity a little bit more in that way when you were over there? And it's a big thing that happens for people when they do birthright and they go to Israel too. Yeah, no, definitely. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact of being around people that were only Jewish and then also um, 
doing things that um, and learn learning things number one, and then seeing things that you had already learned and kind of piecing it all together, right? So um, it definitely made me feel different than I than I felt before I left. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't know how I was going to feel, but it kind of feel more connected with your culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, pivoting from that, because number one, oh nine at Maccabi, you get to see your impact. You get to connect with this side of yourself and you also get to decompress a little bit. Like you said, like it's a meet where everything it's important meet and you won four gold medals and you perform really well, but it's not like everything was on the line. Like it was at the Olympics. And fast forward to 12, just for a second, you kept swimming and you made your fourth Olympic team. Was 09 also important for you to kind of process out how huge 08 was and kind of have a more like smaller, humble moment so that you could then move forward into a different phase of your career into 12? Yeah, no, definitely it was. I mean, um, I, I, once I refocused um, after 09, then I had to start thinking long term again. And um, instead of having these little goals um, anymore. It was more so, hey, I'm going to make it till 2012. And this is what I got to do to make it the next three years. Um, so for me, that first focus was 2010 and the Pampax. And um, this was the first time, actually, um, I believe, uh, you know, I was still on the relay, but Nathan Adrian overtook me and became the fastest American freestyler that year. And that, that really, I was okay the fact that he, you know, was a young kid coming up. But it also got me motivated to keep going. And I always wanted to be the best. Everybody wants to be the best. They want to be on top. Yeah. Um, and so I kept that motivation going. And I kept working hard trying to figure out, can I get faster? Um, what can I do? And the same thing we talked about when I first started training on my own. It was about going back to the, the drawing board and figuring out what I can do to get faster. And, and I think I continued that. And as it got more difficult as I aged, my body wasn't allowing me to do certain things I knew I needed to be successful. So I kept having to change, you know, month by month. It was, you know, day by day. It wasn't just a, a, a one year plan of this is how I'm going to train. It was, I set my plan. It didn't work today. Oh my gosh, I got to figure out what am I going to do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. So it was a constant change. And uh, it was actually mentally really challenging for me over, over that course of time to, to disappoint myself all the time in practice and not be able to do certain things. But the learning process throughout it was great. Mm -hmm. That learning process is, I mean, it's come up so many times in our conversation that you just, if something happens, you draw from past experience, basically on the nose to push yourself through it. So maybe that final stretch going into 12, were you able to change how you thought about yourself? Because like you said, you're probably disappointed because you weren't hitting what you used to be when you were in practice, but were you able to at least detach from that a little bit and give yourself some space to say, Hey, I'm in a new phase. Let's just get to 12. Like what were those little conversations in your head? Like in that, in that final stretch, getting ready for your last Olympic trials? I mean, there was ups and downs all over the place. There was times where I don't know, can I keep doing this? Should I just retire? Am uh, am I getting too old? Is my body going to hold up? Um, So there was the constant battle within myself to, to keep this thing going. So that was the most challenging part, really. And I think the last six months, really, really, I mean, obviously, I wasn't going to retire six months before. So I tried, I tried my best to really just put that focus solely on let's go for it. And whatever happens, happens. I mean, I'm doing my best. This is, I've learned so much. I've adapted. This is the best I'm going to do and just keep moving forward with that. So um, I shifted it, you know, into a positive 
outlook with uh, e even though, you know, there was plenty of times where I knew that there was a good chance I might not make it based on what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. What was it like when you made it? I, I don't really have a, a clever way to frame the question. You get to 12, you get that last relay spot. What was that like when you got your hand on the wall? I mean, it was, it was a relief, like, wow, all that work and all that, you know, the, you know, the, the ups and the downs. Um, okay. I'm there. And now I'm, you know, responsible once again, as I said, like these guys are looking up to me and they want me to help lead them. And it was actually a lot easier this time to only be there for a relay. And I didn't have to focus so much on the swimming side of it. I swam, I was done. And now I could be, you know, the team guy. So I was, you know, making sure I was at every single event. Um, there was nothing to, you know, nothing else to do, but to be there for my teammates. And I think uh, for me to really soak up that experience, to watch every single event at the Olympics and to cheer on your teammates that are doing some spectacular things and to see young people um, breaking out, coming up. And you know that like Team USA is going to be in good hands for the next four years and beyond. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty special. You, you really got to dig into your role on the mentoring and the leadership side of things where you balanced the two in 08 because it was your busiest meet as a swimmer, your most successful meet, but you were also an elder statesman and a veteran on the team. Now in 12, pressure was off swimming wise. You got to punch in on day, forgive me, day two, I believe. And then yeah. the rest of the meet, you could just dig in and mentor the athletes. So besides that, maybe just like a fun thing, what was it, what do you remember from 12 maybe like a fun moment or a cool thing you got to do being done with the meet that you didn't get to do at the last olympics because you were so busy was there anything you got to do like meet a another olympian another uh, sport see it see something you've never seen before what was that like i mean the you know obviously we talked about a lot basketball is my thing so um i met the basketball guys in 08 um and uh, this time in 2012, since I was done, I mean, I, I sat with them in the stands for, you know, a couple different times and chatted it up and, you know, had a good time with that. But um, the one thing I will say, people think, you know, your family travels across the world a lot of times. And that personally, it happens for me, but a lot of people have families that come, but you hardly see your families. They're mm -hmm. there and they, they go support you. But once you're done swimming, I had between prelims and finals every single day where I could go out and I can go hang out in London with my family. And I had two little babies at the time. So um, it was great to connect and then go back to the team. So I had that little piece in the middle every day where um, if I wanted to go out there and do something in London, I could do that and be a part with my family and then come back to the team and be able to support them in that way too. That's man, that's a really special thing that you got to have your children there with you as well. Um, going back to the ISL, I, it's something that I've been, I've been thinking about as we've been talking, because you brought up being a Lake, I could keep coming back to the Lakers. I mean, look, <laughs> we all draw from our experiences and your basketball was a big one for you. When you got the job as a GM, um, were there any people that you knew in the sports industry that you called up for help? Was there, how did you try to learn your role a little bit better? Or was it something that you took on yourself and started just doing research online or in books about? I mean, to be honest with you, I got help from people that weren't like general managers, but, you know, people that I knew, I had, a, you know, friend, a sports agent and that worked with me that was, you know, working under my agent at the time. And um, unfortunately, I did reach out to a couple of general managers and some other things and I didn't get any calls. I won't say who they were or anything, but I mean, it's hard to connect with people like that, that, sure. um, 
uh, unless you have a connection and I, and I didn't, so I wasn't expecting any, any calls back, but it would have been nice to be able to kind of hear, hear it out and learn. And even, even this day, I mean, we're two years in, but if this league starts to grow and it, it gains some traction, people are watching it. Maybe one of these guys takes my call one day. I'm still sure. willing to learn. Um, I, there's plenty for me to learn in this game. Uh, it's new. And uh, I'd, I'd love to talk to anybody that can help me out. What did you learn? Even though the agent didn't pick up, you still got to talk to someone like, you know, that sports agent. It's, it's cross-training for you. It's cross-learning that you can learn from another sport, just like you did your entire life. So what did, what did you learn from that agent that really stuck with you and has um, shaped how you approach your role as a GM? I mean, honestly, it's more like the, um, it's not like a negotiation type thing, but it's kind of, kind of learning, I would say, um, the personal side of things. And, and mm -hmm. for me, as a GM, I think one of the things that's helped me is, you know, instead of go strictly to numbers and say, this is what we got for you, this is what we can do. Um, I've taken the, the approach of trying to get to know people a little bit uh, or being personal or trying to relate something. Um, you know, there's plenty of uh, straightforward people and I am really straightforward when it comes to certain things, but I think you got to be honest with people. You got to, you have to give them the, uh, the type of person that they feel they want to work with. And um, that's what, I, that's what I think I did. And I think I did a good job to be able to, you know, secure a lot of the athletes um, probably because of that. What's your goal? Do you want to be the GM for as in perpetuity? Do you have a goal for how you want your role to change? how you want to help the ISL change and grow moving forward. What, what is your goal now sitting here today for the future? I mean, to be honest with you, I really like this role that I have right now. Um, in the future, I'm hoping this league grows and I'm hoping it turns into something like an NBA or baseball, basketball, football, whatever you want to compare it to. But uh, currently a GM role and uh, the ISL is pretty much you do everything. Um, mm -hmm. I don't have the support staff on the day to day before I get here to do anything. Um, so one day might be a director of operations. We might have a, you know, a marketing director and a communications person, like all these different pieces that all these other organizations have instead of the one man do it all show. Mm -hmm. But if it comes to that, that piece of working with the athletes, that piece of working with the coaches, that's what I really enjoy about it. And I wouldn't want to give that up. Yeah putting a true front office in place so that you can focus on the big picture. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. Jason, thank you so much for being generous with your time and good luck to the doors. Uh, Tate taught me this. So I just think this is right. <laughs> yeah. I don't even bother trying. Those guys got it down. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They do. They do awesome. I mean, we have a lot of great people on our team, a lot of good personalities. So you'll see a lot of the go doors out there and uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully winning this season after coming up short so many times last year, like I did in my personal career, we're coming back. We're going to win it this season. Mm -hmm. And like you always did in your career, hitting that tough spot, learning from it, figuring out a way to be better the next time. Yep. And that's, uh, I, I think our team is better this year in a lot of different ways. And um, I, I, I still haven't given them my pump up speech yet. So we're waiting, we're waiting for the semifinal final. Maybe you'll bring back the, the, the slap at people and yelling at them to go fast like you did in 06. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'll figure out something. But, uh, you know, these guys don't need a whole lot of motivation, but um, they're all they're ready to go. They're a team and it's exciting to watch. True. OK, well, thank you so much, Jason. Good luck. All right. Thanks a lot.
And that's the show. Thanks to Jason Lezak for stopping by Pro Corner. And next week, I will be talking to Fike Swim founder and guess what? Fellow Texas Swimming alum, James Fike. Uh, if you like this, uh, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And again, if you want access to both exclusive premium content and all Pro Corner live webcasts, and you want to support the mission of Pro Corner, head on over to patreon.com slash procorner today to subscribe for a small monthly fee. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week on Pro Corner.